0: My guest today is Dr. Scott Friedman, who is the Dean of Therapeutic Discovery and Chief of the Division of Liver Diseases at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. He has performed pioneering research into the underlying causes of scarring or fibrosis associated with chronic liver disease affecting millions worldwide. His work has spawned an entire field that is now realizing its translational and therapeutic potential with new anti-fibrotic therapies for liver disease reaching clinical trials. Welcome,
1: Scott. Thank you. Delighted to be here, Gil.
0: Thank you. Uh, Scott, you're a world-renowned expert in the area of liver diseases, uh, both scarring-induced diseases and cancer. Uh, What is the state of the art in the
1: diagnosis and treatment of chronic liver diseases now? Um, We're at a very exciting time, Gil. When I was a fellow in the early 1980s in gastroenterology, we had effectively no treatments for liver disease. We could give diuretics to reduce fluid accumulation. Occasionally, we could try prednisone or steroids to reduce inflammation. But effectively, we couldn't cure anything, and we didn't have liver transplantation. Yeah. So um, if one considers the arc of uh, change over that interval of my career, we're now at a point where we can cure hepatitis C, which was a worldwide scourge causing chronic liver disease. And those cures are pills for generally 12 weeks, and they are effective in 95 to 98% of patients. Mm -hmm. We have drugs that can suppress hepatitis B very effectively, a whole panel of drugs, That too has uh, led to a dramatic improvement in the outlook for patients with hepatitis B. And we have liver transplantation, which has been available to us since the late 1980s, but which continues to benefit from tremendous improvements, technical and conceptual, that are saving the lives of patients who have no other medical options. And so uh, if one looks at the state of the field, it's a cause for great optimism and excitement. Having said that, we still have millions of patients who are progressing to the point where they have advanced liver disease. Many of them are not going to qualify for liver transplant. Some, depending on where they are in the world, may not have access to liver transplant. And of course, transplant is a very uh, a very aggressive appropriate but expensive therapy that requires lifelong immunosuppression. So we still have uh, quite a bit of distance to travel in developing treatments that will help those patients who have more advanced disease associated with scarring. Yeah. And we also are starting to see inroads into the improvement in outlook for patients with primary liver cancer, known as hepatocellular carcinoma. Uh, there was just recently a, a drug combination that showed benefit beyond what was previously approved, and that has already been approved. And so we're you know incrementally starting to make inroads into improving the outlook for patients with liver cancer, although for that tumor, the only chance for cure is early detection and some kind of physical uh, removal of the tumor either by ablation or by surgical resection right. still, you know right. we're, we're we're so far beyond where we were thirty years ago, but still challenges ahead, yeah.
0: So the the causes of chronic liver disease, um, I guess some of it is um, related to what we do, uh, diet, uh, lifestyle, obesity, um, those types of things. And I guess some it's related to uh, parasites and external organisms, right? So what um, what is the kind of the growth rate um, of the disease today in the U.S.?
1: That's a really important question, because while I highlighted the good news about uh, hepatitis B and C, there's a rising epidemic uh, at our doorstep known as non alcoholic steatohepatitis, which, as you implied, is associated with obesity, diabetes, hypertension, which collectively are often referred to as the metabolic syndrome. And it's a systemic response to obesity that includes the accumulation of fat, inflammation, and scarring in the liver and uh, that is a problem that we're just starting to uh, wrap our understanding and our arms around in terms of novel treatments. Uh, There are no therapies yet for NASH apart from uh, the uh, known benefit of sustained weight loss and so medical therapies are just on the horizon and in fact that's really where the vast majority of energy and creativity is being applied now in the drug development sector to find new drugs to treat NASH or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. I also need to mention that alcohol or alcohol abuse, uh, alcohol use disorder uh, is still a major cause of chronic liver disease. Sadly, it's becoming worse in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic Mm. for a variety of reasons. Uh, Our program and many around the country, and in fact, the world are reporting higher rates of hospital admissions for severe alcoholic liver disease one can assume that the stress uh, and the isolation associated with this pandemic for those who are prone to alcohol use disorder is getting much worse. And so um, we're looking at a period ahead of us where the major causes of chronic liver disease are going to be alcoholic liver disease and probably about the same rate, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. The reason it's called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is because when the syndrome was first recognized, And doctors looked at liver tissue under the microscope. It looked just like alcoholic liver disease to the point where doctors were saying to their patients, are you drinking? And they would say, no, I'm not. Um, We now know that it's a separate entity, but has many of the same features and probably many of the same disease drivers as alcoholic liver disease. So uh, there's been discussion to change the name instead of defining it by what it's not, define it by what it is, (laughs) is, uh, you know, which is a, a metabolic fatty liver disease. But Suffice to say that this is a growing problem along with alcohol, and that's where most of our drug development efforts are being directed at present, along with liver cancer.
0: Right, yeah. So it's interesting to think about this in the COVID-19 context. So I guess all diseases in the metabolic syndrome channel, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, all of those um, people with pre-existing conditions, they appear to have uh, bad outcomes in COVID-19 too, right?
1: Yes, that's a very important point. So uh, as you mentioned, the data very strongly implicates uh, the existence of hypertension, obesity, obviously older age, male gender as some of the most important risk factors for um, uh, severe or more severe outcomes in the context of uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection or the COVID-19 infection. Yeah. So, and the, the NASH patients uh, who have those comorbidities are going to be at heightened risk if they were to get infected. With right, it. right.
0: And, and scarring, um, is that is that really an injury to to the liver?
1: Yeah, so scarring is, uh, I think the, the simplest way to think about it is if you have, let's say, a, a, a cut uh, or a wound on the skin, the first thing that happens is there's a growth of, cells to cover that opening but then there is recruitment of scar forming myofibroblasts that are factories for producing collagen and other scar proteins to close over and uh, seal the wound and in a similar way um, scarring in internal organs whether it's liver kidney lung is a um, perhaps a well-intended but ultimately ill-conceived effort to encapsulate the tissue that's being injured but as Inflammation becomes chronic in the liver and other organs. The stimulation to make more scar be- makes it more of a problem than a solution because as the, the tissue or the liver becomes stuffed with scar, it effectively chokes out normal healthy cells. It disrupts blood flow. It creates a hostile environment for healthy liver cells to do their job. And so ultimately, over many years of progressive scarring, the liver can no longer make the proteins, filter the blood, uh, do many of its essential life-saving functions. And at that point, a liver failure may develop. Mm. Uh, there's an, one, one other point is there's a really interesting contrast between liver and other organs with respect to the toler, tolerance for scarring. You know, the liver has this m- really magical capacity to regenerate. So as you probably know, and your listeners know, if you are to, if in an animal or in a human, if one resects two thirds of the liver, yeah. It, the remnant will grow back and ultimately um, establish a new liver. Uh, Other organs can't do that. And so by analogy, when there's inflammation in the liver, it takes a much longer time before that ultimately uh, leads to severe scarring, usually in the order of 20 or 30 years, whereas in kidney and lung, that interval can be much, much shorter.
0: Right. Yeah. So if scarring is due to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, um, by changing lifestyle and diet, um, reducing BMI, those types of actions uh, could uh, could regenerate what was lost?
1: Yes, uh, in, in, depending on how advanced the disease is. So the irony is that as we develop and test many, many drugs for NASH, a couple of which look promising, several of which have failed, um, one looks to see what the effects are of that drug, does it block this pathway, that pathway, and so forth. The only intervention that reliably improves all the elements of NASH is weight loss. Weight loss is the best. Um, Now, as we all know, and as I, like probably many of your listeners, suffer from, I can't seem to ever get the weight off, or keep it Mm -hmm. off, and it gets worse as I get older. Um, So weight loss is not as easy as it sounds, but ironically, of all the interventions, uh, uh, diet that achieves weight loss, no matter how you achieve the weight loss, uh, will ultimately improve the outlook for patients with NASH. And if they don't have very advanced scarring, um, it can also reverse scarring. Yeah.
0: And and is uh, wound healing uh, sort of a, a defensive tactical response of the body to, to scarring?
1: Right. So that's, that's a, you know, the generic term uh, is wound healing. You have a tissue that's injured. You're trying to uh, encapsulate a wounded area. So that scarring is part of the wound healing response.
0: Okay, and so, so I guess, um, and I, I, I read somewhere that, um, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, the the the, the nature does not really have to uh, take care of you after you are past your prime, so to speak. That's right. So this is sort of fixing it till, till you, are, yeah. you are there and letting it go. Huh?
1: Yeah. I mean, I often say the same thing is from nature's perspective or from natural, uh, from evolution's perspective, uh, we're only necessary to live long. It's only required that we live long enough to pass on our genes to our offspring. Right. So, you know, everything that our body does in some respects has been evolved to protect us through our, particularly for women, uh, through childbearing years. And then as far as evolution is concerned, you, you've you served your purpose once you're in your 40s and beyond. I'd like to think we have other purposes, but certainly from an evolutionary perspective, if the wound healing response can keep a patient from getting into harm's way for 10 or 20 years until they're in their 40s, 50s or beyond, from an evolutionary perspective, that's a success. Right,
0: and scarring doesn't necessarily lead to cancer, but does it substantially increase the probability?
1: It does, and that's one of the major areas that I'm studying in my own laboratory, what is there about the scarred liver that so so enhances the risk of hepatocellular carcinoma and that risk is cumulative the longer the scarring is present. Mm. Um, And uh, so in hepatitis B and C, probably 85 to 90% of the patients who develop liver cancer already have cirrhosis, which is the most advanced stage of scarring. Interestingly in NASH, the number of patients who have cirrhosis before they develop cancer is lower, it's somewhere around uh, 65%. So there's a heightened risk in NASH patients that cancers will develop even before cirrhosis has uh, uh, developed. And that has important implications for when we should start looking, uh, screening for cancers in NASH patients. And the answer is, although there are no firm data yet, I think common sense would dictate that it's worth Screening for cancer with ultrasound or imaging or alpha phenoprotein in any NASH patient who has intermediate or advanced disease and not to wait until they're cirrhotic. Yeah.
0: And as you know, there is a lot going on uh, in data-based diagnostics. Um, So, for example, you know, there are systems now that can predict your chance of getting hypertension, type 2 diabetes, COPD, uh, pre-diagnosis based on uh, EMR data. Um, So, you know, your demographics, family history, surgical history, medications. Um, I wondered, um, are there analytics like that, that uh, that might help us uh, flag, uh, uh, you know, somebody who could uh, who could move into this type of an issue in the
1: future? Uh, Absolutely. First of all, it starts with family history. If there's a family history of let's say fatty liver disease or NASH, that's often a strong indication. Part of it may be genetics. Part of it may be that first degree relatives typically live together and share the same home and therefore the same microbiome. But more to your point, uh, we at Mount Sinai have developed one of the country's most extensive biobanks. Yeah. We have about 40 or 45,000 uh, st- uh, samples from consented patients who are allowing us under IRB, uh, approval to explore genetic links to disease risk and to disease outcomes, um, and there have been many other studies at other institutions that are beginning to identify specific genetic uh, variants or what are called gene polymorphisms that are that are likely to predict or or that predict a higher likelihood of uh, fatty liver disease, a higher likelihood in some cases of alcohol uh, abuse. Um, uh, different outcomes and risk of cancer. So there's no unified uh, genetic screen for all liver diseases yet. But in the example of non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, one of the first and still one of the most robust genetic markers is a variant in a gene known as PNPLA3. Yeah. And that variant, when present, uh, confers a much higher risk of developing NASH if the patient is, becomes obese. So in that case, it's a variant that doesn't necessarily cause obesity, but if the patient is obese, the gene variant kicks in and heightens the risk that, that obesity will be associated with liver disease. And now there are you know, well over a half a dozen other variants that also correlate with liver disease. Though there are also some genetic variants that, although very few so far, that may also um, predispose to a higher risk of cancer if the patient develops viral hepatitis. Yeah, so we're slowly but surely piecing all this genetic information together to uh, to comprise a, a genetic risk score. Of course, not just for liver disease, but for all kinds of illnesses. Um, in the hope that uh, what we become are rather than you know disease managers, uh, but instead becoming physicians who preserve health by anticipating problems and mitigating them before they either appear or before they get worse. Right. let me give you an example. There are genetic variants outside of the liver that predispose to a high risk of lung cancer among smokers. If you are seeing a young patient and they have that variant, well, for sure, although smoking is always uh, dangerous and never advisable. I think having the additional information to tell that patient, you know, you have a genetic variant that puts you at much higher risk of lung cancer if you choose to smoke, that might influence behaviors in a positive way.
0: Right. Yeah. So gene-based uh, lifestyle interventions early, um, obviously, you know, the uh, y- y- it has a lot of promise, but that could also get into privacy and other related issues. Uh, absolutely. Um,
1: these issues need to be resolved. And, you know, uh, the experts, uh, both at the local and the national level and beyond, are working hard to develop guidelines for how to use genetic information. There's a a major, more than one major consortium, one of which is sponsored by the NIH and others that are grappling with exactly these issues is how does one safely collect information? How does one use the information while preserving patient privacy? Uh, And ultimately, how do you extract actionable information from that genetic data so that you can improve outcomes and avoid disease onset in some patients.
0: Yeah. Is it global data um, in some way that uh, shows uh, perhaps clusters of these diseases, uh, especially the non-alcoholic variety?
1: Yeah, th- there is, and it's linked to back to the genetics. So, for example, if we use the PNPLA3 gene polymorphism I just described, That's known to be much more prevalent in Latino Americans, particularly those descended from indigenous Central and South Americans. Um, And so it's not surprising that the prevalence of NASH, for example, in Mexico and in Central America, is much higher, even if you control for the amount of obesity. So there are clearly going to be uh, ethnic representations uh, that translate into higher risk of all diseases, and NASH happens to be one I'm very familiar with. Right. Right. Americans who may be genetically related to Native uh, or Indigenous um, uh, uh, Latin Americans yeah. might, you know, uh, may have the same risk. So for sure, you know, although genetics doesn't define ethnicity, certainly they're not they're not disconnected. So genetic variants that are more common among different ethnic groups certainly uh, can translate into higher risk of disease. For example. African-Americans are at higher risk of hypertension and developing uh, end-stage kidney disease in the presence of hypertension. And, um, you know, so there are ample examples of genetic and and, uh, risks that are more prevalent in different ethnic groups, but that's not an absolute. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what the color of a person's skin is. It simply matters what their genome is encoding.
0: Right, right. Yeah. And you know the clinical trials around this this anti fibrotic therapies. I guess one complication is um, is really measurement, right? To 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 look at the outcomes. Um, what are the developments there?
1: Um, you yes, know. one of the challenges that that um, I have to think about every day as I help develop new drugs for liver disease is how do we know when the drug is working? Right. Um, and put simply, and you know, the, the the standard for now has been to literally do a liver biopsy and, and quantify the amount of scar within that biopsy as an indication of how the patient is responding to the drug or how severe their disease is. And while that certainly has a strong basis in experimentation, because the more fibrosis or scar, the more uh, complications are likely to develop, When you look at it, strictly speaking, as the FDA does, what they're really interested in isn't how much you improve the biopsy. What they're interested in is whether a drug improves how a patient feels, functions, or survives. Mm. And so um, when you look at it through sort of the hard lens of what the FDA expects, appropriately so, improving a liver biopsy is great, but if that doesn't translate into the patient living longer, having a better quality of life, um not uh, getting into medical trouble then the biopsy is meaningless so we're at kind of an interim stage right now in terms of drug development in liver because we are obligated to continue to rely on liver biopsy for phase three t- trials which are the ones that if successful can often lead to a drug approval
0: yep. we're,
1: we're married or yoked i would say to to liver biopsy and fibrosis quantification But we're desperate to find other markers that are as good or even better at telling us whether the patient is likely to have a longer and healthier life. That's what we that's the gold standard. Mm -hmm. And so from a strict terminology perspective, even liver biopsy, though it's invasive, is still a surrogate marker. The real the real acid test is, can we improve the way a patient feels, functions, or survives? And so we're kind of in a transition period where we're still yoked to biopsy, but there's a lot of exciting technologies that I truly believe will uh, ultimately obviate the need for doing biopsy and assessing whether a drug is effective in a patient with liver disease.
0: Right. And, and I would imagine these therapies um, are long-term or even lifetime therapies typically, right?
1: I I think that's right uh, because uh, the analogy is what about patients with essential hypertension or hyperlipidemia? These are, uh, for the most part, diseases that are not going away. Admittedly, weight loss can improve blood pressure and and improve most things. But, you know, there are many diseases now that we improve outcomes because they're chronic therapies. And I think it's probably safe to assume that for most patients who have NASH, for example, they're not going to have, uh, in fact, the numbers are that in general, only about 5% of patients who try to lose weight can maintain, not only lose the weight, but maintain uh, you know, sufficient weight loss to improve their, their their disease risk. And so we have to assume that in the absence of that kind of weight loss, these patients are going to need chronic lifelong therapy, just as patients with hypertension or uh, hyperlipidemia require lifelong therapy.
0: Right. Yeah, so uh, what's the general thinking that, you know, a lot of these diseases appear to be um, connected, uh, comorbid, and, you know, uh, treating a specific disease often requires sort of a systemic treatment of the entire body, right? So what's what's the general trend in this area?
1: Well, we're not there yet. Uh, I think we are, uh, the trend is we would love to be able to sort of have uh, therapies that attack the root cause of all the diseases, in this case, associated with obesity and liver disease. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're really not there yet. Uh, we don't have, for example, a single agent apart from weight loss that can improve diabetes, blood pressure, uh, liver disease, and patients with metabolic syndrome. Yeah, And so as much as we want to take a holistic approach, I think there, we really have a long way to go. Right. Right.
0: Yeah. I just want to touch on COVID-19 uh, one more time. So, you know, given the conditions that we see and those conditions um, leading to higher levels of uh, mortality um, in older populations, um, is, is there anything that that might allow us to kind of differentiate um, populations a lot earlier? Uh, Age is definitely there. You know, some of these conditions are there. But I wonder if there is a deeper uh, level of data and analytics that might help us in some way.
1: Yeah, I think that's a very, very important question. We're just beginning to scratch the surface. So, for example, there was recent data just this week that suggests that blood type may have uh, some protective or... Uh, or uh, risk. risk. So for example, it was reported that patients with O blood type are a little bit, uh, have better outcomes. One of the other things that we're studying here at Mount Sinai, at least my colleagues are, is whether the amount of virus, literally the viral load yeah. uh, at the time of diagnosis corresponds to a difference in outcomes. Uh, they'll be presenting and submitting some of that data over the next few days and weeks. So I don't want to scoop them, but we're exploring whether those questions are, are important, um, other genetic factors. Uh, and then, you know, I think the bigger, well, there are many challenges, as you and the listeners certainly know, Vaccines probably the most important. And there, there's, you know, some, some optimism, but there remains to be seen. Uh, but in terms of the treatment outlook, there's also efforts to consider prophylactic therapy. So, for example, in an endemic area that is starting to see a surge in infections, are there any medications that we can give, let's say healthcare workers who are sure to be exposed to a lot of infected patients that will uh, reduce the risk that they will acquire the infection? Or alternatively, are there early therapies uh, that can turn off the immune system before it gets too severe? And for example, I've been very involved in one particular drug uh, called Lambda interferon Uh, that is already widely uh, tested for patients with hepatitis B. It's quite safe. Mm -hmm. There's reason to think based on a lot of data that the effects of lambda interferon should also be highly uh, beneficial in early COVID infection, perhaps even just as patients are developing symptoms. Mm -hmm. And so we've opened a trial for very, you know, for patients with mild to moderate disease to see if a single dose of lambda interferon can actually mitigate uh, the development of more severe complications. Right. So, you know, I have to say from a scientific perspective, the progress in what, you know, is three months or less, not just at, uh, in Mount Sinai, which has been vast, but also around the world, the progress has been astounding in terms of how far we've come. It's not fast enough and it never will be as long as patients are getting sick and dying. But, you know, we have the the causative agent, We now have very, very sensitive and specific diagnostics. Um, There's lots of progress on the vaccine front. Uh, We at Mount Sinai are testing a number of different drugs at each of the different stages of COVID-19 infection. Um, And certainly other things like proning the patient, um, uh, avoiding uh, ventilatory support for as long as we can. A lot of different uh, aspects are being rapidly improved to try to improve outcomes before we have an effectively curative therapy or a vaccine.
0: Yeah, I have been surprised too, you know, when you think about life sciences R&D process, uh, from idea to market, you know, it's about 15 years. Uh, Five of those are in discovery, but 10 years in development uh, through various phases. Um, But here, we seem to have um, been able to go through that in a very, very rapid fashion. So on the positive side, perhaps uh, this may have a a net uh, good effect on pharma R&D timelines, perhaps.
1: Well, I think that's part of it. You know, the first uh, wave of treatments are going to be drugs that are already available for for which we have uh, good safety data so we can get them right into patients and test their efficacy. Really, that's what remdesivir is. And virtually every drug that's been tried in patients was developed for another indication. Um, And so... uh, the second wave of therapies are either convalescent serum directly from recovered patients. Uh, now we at Mount Sinai are developing efforts to make hyperimmune uh, globulins, so we really concentrate only the antibodies directed against the virus and give that as a therapeutic. So that's already you know available very quickly. And um, now there are companies that are uh, that are generating. Um, recombinant antibodies, what they're doing is isolating the B cells that make antibodies, identifying B cells from infected patients that are specifically generating antibody to COVID-19 or to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and trying to then clone those B cells to amplify the antibody production as a little factory to use that as a therapeutic. So those are the kinds of things that are right right on the cusp of implementation, or in the case of convalescent serum, have already been implemented. Um, but beyond that, I think, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of other very uh, clever antivirals. And, you know, there's so many surprises about this disease, not the least of which is, um, well, many. Number one is there's, uh, there's a blunted sense of, of dyspnea so that patients are walking around with oxygen saturations that are terribly dangerous and they don't do this they're short of breath, there's been an extremely high prevalence of uh, chronic kidney disease such that we were almost running out of dialysis machines. Um, there's this vasculopathy that's associated with severe coagulation defects and a major study from our institution identified um, uh, anticoagulants as almost surely beneficial certainly in more advanced disease because Uh, It prevents these uh, very severe clotting episodes that have led to amputations or led to strokes or heart attacks. So, you know, so much clinical information is being amassed so quickly. Certainly in the, you know, in the era of the Internet and and big data, we can amass these data sets very quickly. We can do virtual drug screening. Um, it doesn't really address the need sufficiently because all you have to do is read the newspaper to know that patients are still being infected and dying. Yeah. But we do have to try to see the glass at least somewhere half full in terms of how quickly progress has been made. And I will also say that some of the technologies that are being specifically uh, implemented to develop COVID specific therapies may have a spin off benefit where it wasn't anticipated. For example, uh, immune, immune modulators and immune based therapies for COVID nineteen may turn out to provide some insights into more refined cancer immunotherapies for patients uh, with tumors but without COVID nineteen. Right,
0: right. Yeah, so I want to close with um your view, Scott. You know, um you know, uh if you think about liver diseases again, um next five years, what is your your expectations uh, in terms of technology, how that might change uh, the whole arena, both in terms of diagnostics diagnostics and treatment?
1: Right. Uh, That's really, you know, the heart of what I do and think about. I I truly believe that within five years, we will have diagnostics that, that eliminate or almost completely eliminate the need to do liver biopsy and that allow us to track patient progress or deterioration uh, over intervals. So I think on the diagnostic front, I'm very hopeful. Uh, They may be serum proteomic markers. They may be functional breath tests. uh, They may be other non-invasive imaging tests or all of the above that together create enough information to avoid biopsy. So I think that for sure within five years. I think we're on the uh, threshold of hopefully the first drug approval for NASH. Um, but I think others will follow, and will And I think we're going to begin to ask whether uh, there's, a, you know, whether every whether every patient with Nash is exactly the same. In other words, uh, if a drug is approved for all patients with Nash, uh, and in the case, for example, of obeticholic acid, which is going to be evaluated by the FDA in the coming weeks, uh, the phase three trial showed a 23% benefit in the treated patients uh, in reducing fibrosis and Nash and an 11% in the placebo group. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, worthy of, you know, serious consideration to approve the drug as the FDA is doing. On the other hand, 77% of those patients didn't respond. Right. So do they have exactly the same disease? Maybe there are different therapies for different subgroups of NASH patients, such that uh, we can begin to personalize therapy so that every patient with NASH has the right drug based on their makeup, their disease drivers, their genetics, uh, we're not there yet. I think we'll begin to get some insights within five years, but I certainly believe we'll have at least two or three approved drugs for NASH uh, within five years from now. That's that's great news.
0: Um, really appreciate your time, Scott, um, and uh, and and best of luck with everything that you do.
1: My pleasure. Feel free to check in. I expect we'll see a lot of progress. Thanks so much. Okay.